morning, everyone. Hope everybody's getting good time this weekend with family and friends. I really do believe that this right here is the most important thing that any of us will do this weekend. Do you believe that? To gather together to worship God, the echoes of what happens in this very ordinary gathering this morning could ripple down through eternity. And uh, so I commend those who are out of town on vacation, but taking the time to tune in and worship with us anyway, and commend those who could be firing up the grill a little sooner this morning, but are taking time here with us to put first things first. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I hesitate, actually, to lead off with this story, because uh, it makes me feel sick to my stomach even when I heard it, much less when I tell it, but it just fits too well, so I'm going to tell it. If you paid $1 to buy one Bitcoin 10 years ago, you could have sold it last month for, you know how much? $60,000, right? You'd think that'd be good news for Stephen Thomas. He was gifted 7,000 Bitcoins in 2011, back when Bitcoin was worth a dollar. Those 7,000 Bitcoins appreciated until last month they were worth $420 million. There's only one problem, Mr. Thomas saved his bitcoins on a secure hard drive, and he cannot remember the password. Do you see this story? He has two more guesses before he's locked out of the hard drive forever. Uh, but after nine years of trying to think of this password, he's resigned himself now to the fact that he has in his possession hundreds of millions of dollars that he will never be able to access. After years of sleepless nights, trying to remember that password. Stephen Thomas knows, maybe better than anybody on earth, that earthly treasure lets us down. But what he may or may not know is that even if he were to remember that password today and place his future hopes on riches, those hundreds of millions of dollars would still find a way to let him down. At least that's what our text today teaches. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12. You want to follow along with us. We'll start in verse 13. We've, we've come to our last installment of our eight-week series entitled Jesus versus Idols. And what do we mean by idols in an era when none of us are probably worshiping golden statues? We've returned to these definitions along the way the last eight weeks. Idolatry, it's trusting in created things rather than the creator. We've said that an idol is something in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. And we've said uh, with Tim Keller that an idol is anything in your life that's so central to your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. Like you'd say, if I have that, then my life has value. Then my life has meaning. And if I would lose that, I don't know how I would live. And so we've looked at family. We've looked at ministry. We've looked at happiness. We've looked at ethnicity. Various good things that become bad things. And we make them ultimate things. And today we wrap up our series with the idol of security. The idea that if I store up earthly treasure, my future will be secure. <clears throat> now some of you who are especially perceptive and have been paying attention the last month or two are thinking, wait, back in April, 
We already did the idol of wealth. Are you trying to sneak the same idol of money into this series twice? And first of all, yes. But let me share two reasons for that. One is our context. Right? It can be hard for us to see from our vantage point, but if you ask those in our congregation who have lived in impoverished parts of the world, they'll tell you that in their understanding, this area where we live right here, worshiping the idol of money seems about as commonplace as breathing air. Right? So even though we might not realize we worship the idol of money, I mean, does a fish realize it's in water when it's never known anything but water? Some of us who have only ever lived in America have maybe never known anything else. And secondly, we can benefit from multiple sermons on money because there are different ways to idolize money. So one person, for example, wants to get rich to buy a nice car that will impress his co-workers. Another wants to attain a certain income level because she thinks it will validate her sense of self-importance. Today, we're looking at still another form of money idolatry, namely a person storing up and storing up and storing up in order to feel like their future is secure. Now, right at the outset, I want to make clear this morning, we're, we're taking a second shot at this idol of money this morning, not in some scolding sort of way, not at all. Actually, if, if giving to church is an indicator of an appropriate attitude toward money, we here at Northsub seem to be fairly healthy relative to statistics from other U.S. churches. So while there's surely somebody here this morning who is sinfully holding on to their money, my desire is actually to encourage much more than to rebuke this morning, to call for us to build on an existing foundation rather than to challenge some sort of faithfulness in this, unfaithfulness in this regard. So we could, we could put it this way. Even if we were the most generous church in the whole world, we would do well to remind each other from time to time so that we don't forget that earthly treasure can never, ever make us secure. So in our text today, there are three ways in which Jesus shows us that earthly treasure will let us down. We see it through a conversation, a parable, and a lesson. He shows us through a conversation, a parable, and a lesson. Each of these sections could be fruitfully explored in its own sermon. <clears throat> I think there's actually something powerful in taking all three together in one shot. But of course, you know, since we're exploring all three, this will necessarily be a 20,000 foot flyover. But let's jump in with this conversation. In verses 13 to 15, Jesus meets a person who's foolishly seeking earthly treasure. Uh, follow along as I read. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Pause there. Conversation starts with somebody calling out to Jesus in hopes that Jesus would resolve a money dispute. In their family. Anyone had a money dispute in your family? You're hopeful that a parent's death will provide an occasion for the siblings to reconcile with one another. But instead it turns into an argument over the inheritance. Right? What one sibling believes is most fair and best for their family's future clashes with what another sibling believes will be most fair and best for their family's future. Something like this is happening here in our scripture text, and as would happen from time to time, Jesus is asked to weigh in. So let's look at his response. Verse 14. But Jesus said to him, man, who, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Why does Jesus decline the opportunity to get into the details of the situation and make a judgment? 
Maybe it's because he's got more spiritually important things to do, as some commentators suggest. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced of that. To me, Jesus actually often seems quite interested in the mundane, doesn't he? The earthy concerns that face us in our real lives. He holds little children. He heals a woman's menstrual bleeding. He makes sure to pay the temple tax. It's not at all clear to me that this inheritance issue is somehow categorically unimportant to Jesus. So if he cares about our earthly problems, but he's not going to arbitrate in this case, why not? I think verse 15 might give us a clue. Take a look. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Based on that verse, what Jesus says in verse 15, it seems that he detects actually some covetousness, some greed in the initial request. Be on your guard against all covetousness, he warns. Uh, covetousness, that's desiring anything in such a way that we lose our contentment in God, according to John Piper. Why be on guard against that? Because covetousness, unlike some other sins, for example, adultery, uh, is one of those sins that we commit without realizing we're committing it, right? It's deceptive. And Jesus can tell that as reasonable as this request might seem on the surface, there's underneath some unhealthy desire. So maybe Jesus' refusal to weigh in is as simple as what Craig Blomberg points out. He knows the man making the request is not interested in justice, but in getting his own way. And Jesus did not care to promote the transfer of property from one covetous man to another. In other words, to Jesus, there's something much more important at stake for this man than whether he will get his fair share of the inheritance. Namely, whether he will put earthly treasure in its proper place in, in his heart. By way of application, maybe we just keep it very close to the text on this one. Maybe there's a message here for those of us who may find ourselves in our own family money disputes. Better to get no share of the inheritance and maintain a godly relationship toward our family members than to get our fair share of our inheritance by contending with our family members. I'll say that again. Better to get no share of the inheritance and maintain a godly relationship toward our family members than to get our fair share of our inheritance by contending in an ungodly way with our family members. Earthly treasure can never make us secure anyway, which Jesus will bring out with even more clarity now through a parable. Verses 16 to 21. Take a look at that with me. It's a parable in which Jesus tells a story about a person foolishly seeking earthly treasure. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crop. And he said, I'll, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Without realizing it, some Christians are living their whole lives in anticipation of that day right there the day when we can say soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink be merry and the commercials for wealth management services they aren't even subtle 
are they, in, in their attempts to disciple us toward that end goal? Right? Think about the last commercial you saw. Hey, is, is be intentional now to follow our plan so that one day you'll have ample goods laid up for many years. And what images are in the background? Silver-haired couples, relaxing, eating, drinking, being merry. Of course, the problem isn't wealth, right? D.A. Carson, after pointing out that the Bible actually highlights some very rich people who use their wealth for God and are commended by it, he then says this, one hesitates to point out this fact, the fact of these rich people who are faithful. For most of us are so good at deceiving ourselves that we inevitably think this concession lets us off the hook. We all would like to think, oh, I'm like Abraham. I'm, I'm like Job. I'm like Lydia. Those folks in the Bible who have wealth but are faithful. Others out there, they're greedy. I'm just hardworking and frugal. We'd like to think that about ourselves. But some who sincerely believe that are sincerely deceived. Like the man is in this parable. Look at what God says to him in verse 20. He just got done saying, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What if God came to you tonight to tell you that your time was up? Have you invested where you should have invested? Have you been rich toward God? To use the language in verse 21. You say, well, I don't know. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Augustine. 5th century pastor theologian from modern day Algeria, one of the church fathers. He's helpful here when he speaks of the man in this passage. He says this, this man in the parable was planning to fill his soul with excessive and unnecessary feasting. I was proudly disregarding all those empty bellies of the poor. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. What he was stowing away in those barns was perhaps even then being stolen away by thieves. But if he stowed it away in the bellies of the poor, it would, of course, be digested on earth. But in heaven, it would be kept all the more safely. I'm grateful to serve in a church with an active fund dispersing payments regularly to those in need. I'm grateful that I hear stories from church members who have fallen on hard times only to be provided food, clothing, shelter, transportation by other members of the church family whom God has happened to enrich. I wonder how God might want us to expand those efforts. The doctrine of the early church was highly offensive to their neighbors in the Roman Empire, but they embarrassed the Roman Empire. Do you know this? They embarrassed the Roman Empire in those early centuries by taking care of the poor who were neglected by the empire. That was one of the major factors in Christianity's explosive growth in those early centuries. And I don't know, but, but as our beliefs become increasingly offensive in the empire where we live today, might our care for the poor once again become a crucial part of our witness? Third, finally, a lesson. Jesus illustrates the foolishness of seeking earthly treasure. And I say he illustrates it because he uses three different word pictures here to drive home the point he's been making all along about the foolishness of storing up earthly treasure. First, ravens. You see that there, verse 22 through 26? Let's read that. 
And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? This word picture about the ravens is about food. The worry that if we don't store up now, we might not be able to eat later. But, Jesus says, if ravens have no barns, pantries, grocery stores, yet God feeds them, and... If God cares about you more than he cares about ravens, then why are you worried about whether you'll have food to eat in the future? Then he goes on to lilies. Look at verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Are you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The word picture about lilies is one about clothes. The worry that if we don't store up now, we might not have clothes to wear later. But even the highest paid fashion consultants who were working for the richest man in the world at the time, Solomon, couldn't create a look for him, Jesus tells us, that measures up with the intricacy of how God adorned the lilies. So, why are we still trusting human means of providing clothes for ourselves instead of trusting God to clothe us? Jesus says. Third word picture, finally, money bags. Verses 32 to 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This one's about what to do with our wealth so that it won't be susceptible to loss. And Jesus points out there's one way to store your money that basically amounts to putting it in an old money bag with holes in it that's susceptible to thieves and moths. There's another way to store your money where the money bag's never ripped, where the thieves and moths don't have access. Ravens, lilies, money bags, these three word pictures are used to emphasize the utter foolishness of trying to store up worldly treasure. So if we zoom out now on all these three sections together, the conversation, the parable, the lesson, we see they're all making roughly the same case, right? That earthly treasure can never make us secure. Now, 99% of us here this morning, if we were given a, uh, a true or false at the door when we entered, we would have marked true to the statement, storing up earthly treasure is foolish, right? We, we, know, we already knew that. Of course, that doesn't mean we live like it, right? So what I want to do with the rest of our time is to just drill for a minute into three reasons given in our text by Jesus why storing up earthly treasure is foolish. Why? Right. My belief and my prayer is that if these three reasons sink in, then the message might take 
deeper root. The first reason why storing up earthly treasure is foolish. It won't achieve what we're hoping it'll achieve. It won't achieve what we're hoping it'll achieve. Do you remember Stephen Thomas, uh, whom we talked about at the beginning with the Bitcoin? That was one of his major reflections in his New York Times interview a couple months ago, that his loss made him seriously question his self-worth. That was one of the main things that he wrestled with. You say, well, that's just because he lost it, right? If I keep my wealth and consistently grow it, I'll be satisfied. But the studies show that's not true. Harvard Business School professor Michael Norton has found that whether your net worth is $1 million or $100 million or more, basically everyone surveyed with a net worth of a million dollars or more has the same answer to the question, how much would you need to be satisfied? Okay? And almost everybody from there up answers the question the same way, two to three times whatever it is that they have. Holds true from one million all the way up the income scale to the very top. That's the way it is with the treasure of this world. In verse 15 of our text, Jesus said it like this, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life consisting in possessions, that's identity language, as Tim Keller points out. If your life consists in your possessions, then your identity rests on those possessions in such a way that if those possessions were lost, you would feel lost. Do you have any possessions that if you lost them, you would feel lost? Jesus is making the point in verse 15, earthly treasure is not a secure place to stake your identity. It can't hold as the defining feature of who you are. If you lose it, you'll lose your very self. And even if you keep it, when you inevitably meet someone richer than you, you'll feel lesser than them, if that's what your identity is. And then I love how blunt Jesus is in verses 25 and 26 about earthly treasure's inability to achieve all of what we hope it will achieve. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, hey, all of this anxious, busy maneuvering to try to secure a better future for yourself, all this energy spent to store up worldly treasure to enhance your long-term prospects, surely with all that effort, you can add an hour to your life, right? Like a 60-year life, that's 525,600 hours. Surely all of your diligence will result in you living at least 525,601, right? You, you can pull that off, surely. You can't? You can't pull off adding that one extra hour? If you can't even do something that minuscule, what do you think all your busy maneuvering to store up earthly treasure is going to be able to accomplish for you? He says. Earthly treasure is not solid enough to serve as an identity. It's not sure enough to put faith in. It's not powerful enough to even to add an hour to our lives. It's vapor. It's fleeting. If you're here this morning and you don't want to rest your future security on Jesus, okay, many don't, but then you're faced with the question, what else have I found that is solid enough to stake my future on? And if your answer to that question has been my stuff or my wealth, Take it from Stephen Thomas, or take it from the wealthiest people in the world who are also some of the unhappiest. This will never do for you what you'd like it to do for you. Second reason why is storing up earthly treasure is foolish. God is motivated to take care of our needs. God himself is. Even as a kid, maybe some of you can relate to this, I was type A enough 
that my least favorite part of the Lion King movie was the Hakuna Matata scene, right? Remember that song, A Problem-Free Philosophy, No Worries for the Rest of Your Days, right? Basically, it's the message, just relax, it'll all work out. But back then and now, here's what I want to know, how is it going to work out exactly, right? Like, if Mufasa had believed it was all going to work out for him, would that have kept him from... Spoiler. Jesus isn't appealing here to some general principle in the universe that things just work themselves out. He's appealing to a personal God who's personally invested in taking care of our needs. For example, how do the ravens get fed? According to Jesus, God feeds them. Verse 24. This weekend after the rain, I was watching out the window with our boys as robins plucked worms out of the dirt. That worm is there, I told them. Because God personally attended to that robin's needs and provided for it when food was needed. And then the lilies, these ultra HD cameras we have now are showing breathtaking images of flowers. I couldn't confirm whether that was a lily or not. Somebody here knows. But anyways, Jesus is like, hey, you know that lily didn't get that way by accident. It didn't even get that way by human effort. The God of the universe stooped down and exercise his infinite creative and aesthetic capacity to clothe that flower in a stunning wardrobe Versace could never even duplicate, much less improve on. And of course, with the ravens and the lilies, Jesus then argues from lesser to greater. If that's the way it is with birds and flowers, what about you? You are the crown of God's creation. The only creatures made in his image to have a personal relationship with him. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Verse 24. Lilies are just fancy grass that people use for fuel when firewood runs out. You don't think that God's going to clothe you too? I don't know who's here this morning bending over backwards to provide for your future. By storing up what you think you'll need because you don't think God understands how dire your prospects look. But listen to the word of empathy from your personally attentive God, starting in verse 30. Your father knows you need food and clothes. He does. In other words, he's neither calling on you to strive to provide for yourself, nor asking you to subscribe to some impersonal hakuna matata in which we're supposed to just let whatever happens happen. It's a third way. He's saying, let God show off. You're right that you need these things. You're just wrong that it's on you. Let God do what he's eager to do. Third, finally, our hearts will follow our treasure. Third reason why storing up earthly treasure is foolish, because our hearts will follow our treasure. I'm obviously referring here to that final verse, verse 34. But did you notice, look at verse 34 again. Did you notice that the phrasing is actually reversed from how we evangelicals have often been taught to think about things like this our faith tradition puts so much emphasis on the heart rightly so the internal over the external right and that has been such a helpful correction to so much legalism so much trying to earn our way to God that was so unhealthy but there's a risk then that will take that message like the internal is really what matters and then superimpose it over every scripture text that we find in such a way that we wash out what the text is actually saying. Look again. 
Verse 34. Jesus could have said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He wouldn't be wrong. That's probably what many of us would have expected him to say. Where you put your treasure then reveals where your heart was already at. That's not actually what he says, is it? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, while the location of our treasure does surely reveal something about our hearts, this verse suggests the influence can work in the other direction as well. In other words, choosing to place our treasure somewhere will result in our heart then following that treasure. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but if you're sitting here reflecting on this text and facing the sad reality that your heart feels much more drawn to the stuff of this world this morning than it is to Jesus, I'm going to say something that might sound strange. Don't wait for God to change your heart before you start reallocating your treasure. Don't wait for God to change your heart before you start reallocating your treasure. The reallocating of your treasure might be exactly what God uses to change your heart. In other words, if you want your heart to be more drawn to God and to the things of heaven, then maybe the first step is to choose to divest yourself of some of what you have. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. By doing so, Jesus says, you'll store up treasure in heaven. And if verse 34 is true, your heart will eventually gravitate there to follow the treasure. That last piece takes us into the positive takeaway from this text. We've been mostly focused on the problem emphasized throughout this text, that storing up worldly treasure is foolish, but praise God. There's an antidote given in this text to the disease. We're not just given something to avoid, we're giving something positive to do. It's our big idea for today. It's this. Instead of foolishly uh, storing up earthly treasure, let's store up treasure in heaven. Instead of foolishly storing up earthly treasure, let's store up treasure in heaven. This is said in different forms in the text we just read. In verse 21, Jesus talked about it as being rich toward God. In verse 31, he talked about it as seeking his kingdom. Verse 33, he talked about as providing yourselves with money bags that don't grow old. Those are all different ways of communicating roughly the same idea. It's not just some ascetic self-denial, like stay away from wealth. No, it's, it's store up treasure, but store it in heaven. Be rich, but be rich toward God. In that way, this idol of financial security turns out to be a lot like the other idols that we've looked at in this series time and time again when jesus confronts an object of worship in our hearts his counsel is not you shouldn't want that rather it's more like you don't want that enough go chase after that harder than you've ever chased after it before but chase after it in its permanent lasting form i think about that with me again as i retrace a few from the series money Jesus doesn't say just deprive yourself of money. He says go store up for yourself treasure in heaven, an ultimate sort of treasure that will last billions of years after your stockpile here has gone up in smoke. With family, he doesn't just say reject your family. He says go invest in an eternal family, an ultimate sort of family that will last billions of years after your biological family members pass away. Happiness, he doesn't just say become a stoic who seeks to live life on a flat line emotionally. He says, go get the deepest sort of happiness that will last whether circumstances are favorable or unfavorable. You can apply this to any idol 
we've, we've examined any idol in our hearts. It's not that we've pursued these idols too much. It's that we've pursued them too little. We've been satisfied with the crumbs when God wants us to go after the whole cake that's only found in him. As for the idol of financial security, it's all too easy in the area where we live to slip into the sort of relationship toward money in which we'd be devastated if a misplaced password permanently locked us out of our investments. You say, of course I'd be devastated by that. It'd be weird if I wasn't devastated by that. Me too. I'd be devastated by that. But that's idolatry. We just can't feel how serious that sin is in our hearts, how prevalent it is, because it's the air that we breathe on the North Shore. Whether we're rich or poor, it's just around us. Tell me if I'm wrong. Would anybody in your neighborhood raise an eyebrow if you spent the rest of your life taking great pains to set yourself up to eat, drink, and be merry for many years off of what you squirreled away? No, mine wouldn't. In fact, they'd probably be confused if I didn't. When we find ourselves then living in an environment in which a certain idol is so endemic to the culture around us that even the Christians in the place we live see worship of that idol as a virtue, not as a vice, then we have to take extra effort to be on our guard, as Jesus says in verse 15. The sin of greed, covetousness is deceitful in any culture, which is why Jesus talked about it so much and why I'm convicted we need to talk about it more. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet entered into a personal relationship with Jesus, I want you to hear this. The one who's speaking in our scripture text today isn't just some wise guru from 2,000 years ago giving good advice in the abstract about long-term security. This is the Son of God speaking. He knows a little about trusting God with long-term security. He left the security of heaven where he was worshipped 24-7 by terrifyingly beautiful creatures and had the riches of the universe at his disposal for an insecure existence down here. One in which, as a baby, he needed to be fed by others just to survive. And as an adult, he didn't have a home where he could be sure he'd be able to rest his head at night. And then ultimately, he went as far as to allow his future to be snuffed out in death. Why? So that you and I could have a future. If you want certainty that when you die, you'll spend eternity with God in heaven, you can walk out of here with that certainty today. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he did in your place at that cross. Please talk to one of us if that assurance is something that your heart is yearning for. And if you're here this morning, you've already entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. I actually just want to give that same gospel reminder as we close. Christ left the security of heaven for an insecure existence down here and then had his future snuffed out willingly so that our futures could be secured. If he was willing to go to those lengths, is he not deserving of our trust regarding, for example, our college years or, for example, our retirement years? Lord, we want to trust in you and you alone for our futures. Even as we try to make wise decisions 
as we try to be faithful stewards of what you've given to us, we know, Lord, that we are all too prone to justify storing up money for ourselves, storing up treasure here on earth while not being rich toward you. We're all too quick to justify the good reasons why we might tear down our barns and build bigger ones or whatever the modern day equivalent of that is today. We know, Lord, that we're prone to miss this idol in our hearts and to walk out of here even this morning thinking that we are okay. That's somebody else's problem. Lord, to the degree that this idol does exist in our hearts, we pray that you would shine your light on it. In that dark corner of our heart that we don't really want to look at, shine your light there. Show it to us so that we might confess, agree with you about our sin, and then receive the grace, the forgiveness that you offer in Jesus Christ. Make us people who are more conformed to your image, who are more like you tomorrow than we are today, particularly in this area of where we place our future security. In Jesus' name.